is in Fall of Big Meech and the Black Mafia Family by Mara Shalhoub. This book is read by L. Stephen Taylor. Cast of characters, Black Mafia Family and Associates. Demetrius Big Meech Flinnery. Terry Southwest T. Flinnery. Charles Pops Flinnery. Chad Jabo Jr. Boss Brown. Fleming Ill Daniels. Barima Blue Da Vinci McKnight. Eric Slim Bivens, Benjamin Blank Johnson, Arnold A.R. Boyd, Wayne Wainiat Joyner, Amari O'Dog McCree, William Doc Marshall, Jacob the Jeweler Arabo, Jerry J. Rock Davis, Jermaine Kiki Graham, Scott King, Eric Mookie Rivera, Ernest E. Watkins, Ulysses Hack Hackett, J. Young Jeezy Jenkins, Roderick Gucci Main Davis, Investigators, Bryant Bubba Burns, Mark Cooper, Jack Harvey, Rand Shahi, Rolando Betancourt, BMF, Prologue, March 2008. As bad as they wanted me, there was no winning. Demetrius Big Meech Flinnery. The most notorious inmate ever to set foot in the St. Clair County, Michigan jail is reclined on a ledge just off the hallway that leads to his cell. His hair, unwound hours earlier from the braids he usually wears, is pushed back from his face, falling to his shoulders in kinky waves. He's saddled with a few extra pounds, but that's to be expected. He's been locked up in his suburban facility an hour north of Detroit and just across the water from Ontario for three Michigan winters. That's countless days stuck in a coop where you can't be let outside, not even to exercise, not even for an hour, unless the thermostat creeps above 40 degrees. Fat chance of breaking 40 in February or even March. He's actually looking forward to prison, hopefully somewhere down south where it's warm. Still, he's not complaining. They've been good to him here. He's polite and well-mannered, and that's earned him certain privileges. Visitors come in from out of town. A guest list that he claims has included rap superstars Akon and Young Jeezy. Snoop Dogg tried to come, but got snowed out. The deputies go out of their way to accommodate them. To the inmate, preferential treatment is nothing new. On the outside, he was used to getting what he wanted. Jail is no different. Knee propped up, back pressed against the cement wall, he leans into the glass partition. There's no chair on his side, and... Though a guard just announced over the loudspeaker to please refrain from sitting on the ledge, he's sitting on it anyway. So he has no choice but to look down at me. It's not a patronizing gesture, but one that brings to mind his unshakable pride, his famed largesse, his ability even now to salvage some of the grandeur to which he'd grown accustomed. I asked about one of his other reputed traits, one that paints him in the less generous light, or, as a federal informant once put it, his street rep as a vengeful killer who threatens people. He kind of chuckles and takes pause as if bemused by the question. I'll put it to you like this, he says, leaning in closer, casual and friendly. If trouble comes to me, then I'm going to deal with it. That kind of stuff, petty stuff, stuff that got blown out of proportion, used to happen all the time, he says. There'd be jealousy over girls or people thinking their crew is better than his crew and so forth. Some guys make a fool of themselves, he continues. Then, before you know it, they look up and there's a bunch of us. We just handle the problem the best way we know how. Again, 
He claims that's only when people come asking for it. He prefer to keep things civil. I'm more old school, more family oriented, he says. I don't believe in airing differences in public places. It's a reasonable explanation from a seemingly reasonable man, but it's not hard to glimpse the darkness behind the facade. He offers it up every now and then. It slips from behind the transformative smile, peeks around a pair of otherwise warm and engaging eyes. Those eyes narrow when I bring up a murder charge filed against one of his closest crew members. It's the only violent allegation to hit the inner circle that ever made it to the trial calendar. That's ridiculous, he says. The witnesses say otherwise. I can't see him doing something to somebody like that. He blames the murder rap on an overzealous snitch, one who came forward only after he himself was in trouble, and who claimed to have witnessed the killing but did nothing to stop it. What was he doing? Sitting there watching? Doesn't add up. As for everything else, the two decades in the game, the fast cars and grinding music, the showering cash and fawning respect, the partying that would make Tony Montana blush, well, that made his current situation worth it. The bummer is that he was good at what he did. Too good, he thinks, for things to have gone the way that it went. It just didn't seem like his time. If he'd been busted with a hundred keys or had sold to the DEA, that'd be one thing. That would somehow be more understandable. That's not what happened. What happened, he believes, was that he became far too fascinating to those who wanted to see him fail. By the time the Bentleys were rolled out and the billboards went up and the rappers were invoking his name in top ten hits, he was past the point of return. His only option was to do it big. And if doing it big meant putting on even more of a show for the feds, so be it. It was a matter of necessity. But what about before? Why go down that path in the first place? Why blow it up the way he did when blowing it up meant blowing it all away? If I was going to stick with the illegal stuff, I would have sat in and stayed out of sight, he says. But what can you do when you're expected to go out? When everybody wants to see you? In any case, he didn't really think he'd get caught. He didn't think there was anything he could get caught for. Now he knows different. Now he knows that no matter how careful he might have been, he overlooked one obvious fact. The very combination that first made him a success, his ability to attract attention and his unwillingness to slow down, was destined to make him a failure. On both sides of the law, he became all but impossible to resist. People wanted to see him, and the government wanted to see him go down. As bad as they wanted me, he says, there was no winning. So in the end, he's glad he did it the way he did, because at least he had some fun. At least he flexed a little muscle, bore a little influence. He claims to have boosted the careers of T.I. and Jeezy in Atlanta and Fabulous in New York, which means they all have him to thank. Not that he's looking for validation exactly. Just the recognition that back in the beginning when no one else was paying much attention, he was the one who helped float them. He was the one who helped elevate some of the biggest names in hip-hop, which at the time meant some of the biggest names in music, period. He was the one who helped create the fantasy that they are still living. Viewed from his exile on the second floor of the St. Clair County Detention and Intervention Center, the past has grown even more distant than 29 months in lockup would have you believe. Man, he says, breaking eye contact for a brief moment, as if he could still glimpse that evaporated dream. Sure do miss it.
one, chaos. They have a lot of money. They have a lot of drugs. You don't know what you're getting yourself into. Mystery 911 caller. Demetrius Big Meats Flannery didn't just walk in the club. He arrived. He usually arrived under the watch of bodyguards. Every now and then, he arrived with a hundred or so hangers on. And on those nights, when egos were bruised or the wrong woman got involved, he arrived with trouble. It was hard to compete with a presence so huge, not to mention one that could drop $50,000 on a single bar tab. And so sometimes his arrival was cause for others in the club to bolt. The first sign he was coming, the cars. They coasted to the curb like supermodels down a runway. Bentleys and H2s, Lambos and Porsches. And when the crowd swelled to full ranks, tour buses. Under the marquees of clubs from midtown Atlanta to South Beach, Miami, the streetlights bounced off the million-dollar motorcade, and it was blinding. Next, the crew. Meech liked to treat all of them as family. Everybody moves like brothers, he used to tell them. Everybody moves as one. But as with any entourage, there was a definite hierarchy. Pushing into the crowd, if that were possible, you first find the guys who hover on the fringes, moving forward with a menacing sway. Go deeper, and the vibe would start to change. Guards would come down. Egos would edge up. Keep going, and you'd encounter a steady calm. The aura was one of undisputed confidence and quiet control. That was when you knew you'd hit Meech. Tall and broad, with the posture of a prize fighter and the swagger of a big cat, Meech could cause the climate in a room to change. All Meech did was walk in the spot. One woman would later recall, and panties got moist. His pale bronze skin exaggerated the depth of his ink-black eyes. A movie star's mole rested just below his left temple, at the tapered edge of an arched eyebrow. The aquiline curve of his nose offset his high, chiseled cheekbones, and a pencil-thick mustache and goatee framed a pout that barely turned up at the corners, giving the impression that, even at his most serious, he was about to break into a grin. Waxing eloquent in his velvety drawl, bedecked with enough diamonds to stock a jeweler's counter, Meech was the center of attention at all the best clubs and the biggest parties, and that's where he intended to stay. He kept the company of rappers and moguls, models and athletes, and, most important, a group of men who he employed and indulged. He fed the crew $600 bottles of champagne and top-notch ecstasy. He took care of them, lifted them up, behaved as their friend and benefactor. They, in turn, would honor and protect him was perhaps more comfortable with the arrangement than he should have been. It was easy for him to forget that there were some things he couldn't control. And one of those things would take place on November 11, 2003. It proved to be the big one, the very event that Meech, as well as the jittery residents of Atlanta's swankiest neighborhood, had long feared, though for different reasons. With its sparkling glass towers and Italianate architecture, its foie gras-obsessed menus and Versace shopping bags. Buckhead is the epicenter of Atlanta's wealth, an Upper East Side with an abundance of parking lots. But by dint of its upscale offerings, the neighborhood, situated a few miles north of downtown and split down the middle by the city's iconic thoroughfare, Peach Street, had begun to attract a crowd that made the resident Blue Bloods cringe, professional sports and music stars, and those who wanted to party with them. 
and a growing number of that crowd was black. For decades, Atlanta had boasted a thriving African-American middle class. The majority black city suffered its share of racial tension, but more so than in other places, blacks and whites in Atlanta had benefited from an era of prosperity and, for the most part, the appearance of goodwill. The culture clash in Buckhead was a sharp departure from that. Historically, the provenance of sensible southern ladies and old muddied men, Buckhead morphed in the mid-1980s into a debaucherous entertainment district populated by a mostly white, notoriously rowdy crowd. Then, by the late 90s, Buckhead changed again, earning an identity as the nightlife district of Atlanta's nationally renowned hip-hop scene. Clubs that formerly catered to frat boys and bachelorette parties switched formats to rap and crunk nights. All too often, the partying got out of hand, and the hip-hop scene was easy to blame. The most notable meltdown was the post-Super Bowl stabbings for which Baltimore Ravens linebacker Ray Lewis was arrested for murder, and after the case against him fell apart mid-trial, walked away from with a misdemeanor. The outcome of the case exemplified a growing trend of witnesses becoming unable to remember who shot or stabbed whom. That was three years earlier, outside Cobalt Lounge. About a block away, Near the intersection of Peachtree and Paces Ferry Roads, in the heart of Buckhead, a nightclub of similar glitz was earning its name. Chaos was one of the it clubs. Shaquille O'Neal and Eminem had partied there, and Monday's hip-hop night was the club's biggest draw. Hundreds of people would pass through Chaos's plate-glass doors on what, for other clubs, was the slowest day of the week. Chaos, the only thing slow about Mondays, was the line. On that particular Monday in November 2003, you couldn't walk across the club's lacquered wood floors. You couldn't lean against its exposed brick walls or grab a seat on its minimalist leather sofas without catching sight of one of Meech's guys. As usual, Meech's crew was everywhere. Anthony Jones must have known that. Yet Jones, better known in hip-hop circles as Wolf, and more important, as Wolf, who is Sean P. Diddy Combs' former bodyguard, did something that stood a good chance of starting an all-out war. Wolf was no stranger to conflict, and as a professional bodyguard, he didn't go out of his way to avoid it either. He'd been convicted in 1991 for the attempted murder of a New York cop. He spent two years in prison. Two years after his release, he witnessed an Atlanta club shooting that defined the clash of East and West Coast hip-hop. A crew from L.A., including Death Row Records founder Marion Suge Knight, was pouring out of West Peachtree Street's swanky Platinum Club, only to come face-to-face with the arriving entourage of Knight's biggest rival, Sean, then Puff Daddy Combs, CEO of New York's Bad Boy Entertainment. In the ensuing brawl, a record exec in Knight's camp was shot several times. Weeks later, he died. Six years passed before the long-dormant investigation was resuscitated, with Wolf as the prime suspect. Wolf was also hanging out at a Times Square nightclub in 1999 when, once again, gunshots rang out. This time, the fight started when a club-goer threw a fistful of bills in Combs's face. After fleeing the scene with Combs, Combs's then-girlfriend Jennifer Lopez and his rapper-protege Jamal Shine Barrow Wolf was arrested on a weapons charge, which he later beat. Shine didn't fare so well. He was convicted of assault and 
reckless endangerment and was sentenced to ten years in prison. Soon thereafter, Wolf relinquished his post as Combs's most coveted muscle, and he came to Atlanta to start over. He wanted to make a name for himself as a hip-hop promoter. He became well-known in the local club scene as a big spender and, on occasion, a big pain in the ass. Wolf, with a build reminiscent of a brick wall and a villain-styled widow's peak, was a tough guy. He was a tough guy who would talk himself out of a bad situation when he could. But when all else failed, he wasn't exactly quick to back down. The problem was, Big Meech wasn't the type of guy anyone should stand up to for long. Among Meech's distinguishing characteristics was his insistence that every guy in his crew be given his own bottle of Cristal, or Perrier Jouet, at the club, even when the numbers grew to fifty or more. It was one of the obvious ways Meech built allegiances. But it wasn't the only way. People were drawn to him not against their will exactly, but because his aura of wealth, power, and generosity was impossible to resist. And once inside his circle, his followers rarely left. Sure, there were VIP rooms and beautiful girls and all kinds of money to be spent on whatever luxury you could possibly imagine. But more important, there was Big Meech in the middle of it. His hand resting on your shoulder like the father you never had. The one who let you drive the car your real father could never afford. The one who took you everywhere with him, wherever the business was. This management style served Meech well. His crew's loyalty was like armor. It very nearly made him invincible. And November 11, 2003 was no exception. In Meech's eyes, he and Wolf were friends. A local celebrity photographer had snapped a picture of the two men just a couple of months earlier each with an arm draped around the other's neck, wearing glazed-over but friendly smirks. In those early morning hours at Club Chaos, however, any semblance of camaraderie between them vanished. It started when Wolf got rough with his ex-girlfriend. She wasn't just any ex-girlfriend. She was an ex-girlfriend hanging out with Meech's crew. Wolf made it clear he didn't want her keeping that particular company, and he knew enough about the crew to know his objections, once they turned violent, wouldn't be tolerated. Still, Wolf wouldn't let up. Enraged by his ex's refusal to bow to his demand, and with a rapt audience looking on, Wolf grabbed her by the neck. Meech didn't miss a beat. He stepped in and told Wolf to back off. For a while, he did. Wolf actually retreated. But Meech had a feeling that Wolf was still angry and he thought it had less to do with the girl than with the theory he'd hatched, that Wolf was jealous of what Meech describes as a close friendship with Combs. Both Meech and his brother claimed to be tight with the New York music magnate, and it seemed to Meech that Wolf didn't want him on that turf either. An hour later, Wolf stepped back into the picture. He went straight for his ex. He started roughing her up again. That time, Meech didn't even have a chance to react. Club security swooped in, Wolf was tossed out. It was seen that with Wolf's exit, the night's trouble would have come to a close. Meech and his boys went back to doing what they were known for doing, ingesting an obscene amount of champagne and spending an even more obscene amount of cash. It was only 1.30 a.m. after all, and the bar wouldn't close for another two and a half hours. Wolf, banished from the cozy confines of the club, stepped into the cool November night, and headed toward the parking lot behind the building. He hooked up with his friend, Lamont Riz Gertie, whom he'd known since they were kids growing up in the Bronx. 
He found a comfortable place to lean up against Meech's Cadillac, and he began to wait. For the past two years since the spring of 2001, agents of the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration have been keeping watch on a big white house tucked away in a quiet suburb 20 miles outside of Atlanta. Beyond the tall iron gate that kept onlookers at bay, and a front door that admitted select guests into the modern marble-floored 4,800-square-foot expanse, agents believed they'd find something they were desperately chasing, evidence to boost their ongoing investigation into Demetrius Big Meech Flinnery. The problem, however, was getting inside. The DEA first identified Meech as a suspected drug trafficker in the early 90s. But back then, he was only a peripheral figure. He didn't register as a major player until 1997. That's when Special Agent Jack Harvey, out of the DEA's Atlanta office, picked up on him. Harvey had been with the DEA since 1984, and he was a good fit for any long, tedious drug detail. With his pale, freckled skin, gentle demeanor. He was unassuming as far as DEA agents go, but underneath his placid exterior, Harvey was an intense and passionate investigator. He had the smarts and the patience to build a case that can take down a kingpin, and after he picked up on meat in the late 90s, he began to follow him like a shadow. At the same time, Harvey was tailing Meech in Atlanta, the DEA office in Detroit was developing leads on both Meech and his younger brother, Terry, Southwest T. Flinnery. The Flinnery brothers had grown up in southwest Detroit, in the downtrodden suburbs of Ecorse and River Rouge, and Michigan investigators had linked the brothers to several Detroit drug traffickers. Many of them belonged to a gang called the Puritan Avenue Boys, or PA Boys for short. The PA Boys were a ruthless, old-school cocaine crew, headquartered along Puritan Avenue in the northwest sector of the Motor City. And with the help of a wiretap investigation and confidential informants, the DEA was closing in on several of its top members. Through that investigation, the agents were beginning to realize that the Flinnery brothers, though not members of the PA boys themselves, had a drug organization of their own, and that organization would warrant some serious attention. Harvey kept in regular touch with the agents in Detroit. He also began to track several Detroit-born gangsters who, like Meech, had relocated to Atlanta. He built relationships with more than half a dozen confidential informants who slipped in bits and pieces of Meech's history, or at least his myth, in both Atlanta and Detroit. And with each of those tips, the picture of Meech grew more formidable. One story Harvey heard involved the unfortunate fate of a Detroit drug dealer named Dennis Kingsley Walker. In 1994, Walker had been arrested by the DEA in Atlanta on cocaine conspiracy charges. After pleading guilty, he cut a deal with the feds in exchange for providing information on one of his co-defendants, Tony Valentine. As a result, Walker served only three years of his five-year prison sentence. He was released from a federal halfway house on October 30th, 1997. And one of his first stops was the bar at the downtown Atlanta Weston, the second tallest hotel in the Western Hemisphere. After chatting up several women and downing a few drinks, Walker left the shimmering glass tower. He drove his Nissan Maxima north on Interstate 85, pulling off near Buckhead. On the exit ramp, the car slowed alongside his. 
One of the car's windows rolled down. Somebody took aim with a forty caliber Glock. In a flash, Walker's Nissan was sprayed with bullets. He was killed instantly. The following January, confidential informants were helping the DEA gather information on who might have murdered Walker. Agents taped a wire to the chest of one such informant who managed to capture a key conversation. An acquaintance claimed that a man called Michi gunned down Walker because Walker had assisted the feds in their case against Valentine. Meech immediately became the prime suspect in the murder. But the DEA's trail went cold. Despite an intensive investigation, authorities couldn't come up with enough evidence to make an arrest. A year later, another confidential informant sat down with the DEA. The first thing he did was pick a picture of Meech out of a lineup then shared several things he claimed to know about the man in the photo. The man used fake names, and he'd probably never get a driver's license with his real one. He often walked around with large wads of cash, but didn't have a job. He was known to carry a handgun sometimes, too. He was aware that the DEA was following him. He wasn't happy about it. Lastly, one of his associates was a notorious Detroit drug dealer and PA Boys enforcer named Thelman he stuck Stucky. The government already had a thick file on Stucky, and the more Harvey learned about the flashy, old-fashioned gangster, the more parallels could be drawn between him and Meech. For years, Stucky had split his time between Atlanta and Detroit. Like Meech, Stucky also had an interest in hip-hop. He was a producer for the Detroit rap label Puritan Records. And according to a federal informant, Stucky had a violent distaste for snitches. Yet Stucky was far more audacious than Meech ever was. He once had the audacity to call the police to his Atlanta home after it was burglarized, an unusual move for a drug dealer, even before taking into account the items he reported stolen. Stucky told police the thieves had made off with a wardrobe that would have made legendary Harlem gangster Frank Lucas proud, including 18 pairs of $500 alligator shoes and a robust collection of men's fur coats. A year after the Atlanta burglary, Stucky found himself in a dangerous confrontation with several Detroit police officers. A confrontation that culminated in him pulling off an amazing feat. The officers claimed that Stucky fired at them with an AK-47 assault rifle and that he was wounded by return fire. Stucky was indicted for attempted murder, but he beat the rap. He then turned around and sued the police department for inflicting his injuries. He walked away with a $150,000 settlement. But perhaps the most outlandish of all Stucky's escapades stemmed from his relationship with Ricardo Slick Darbins, a dirty Detroit cop-turned-drug dealer. Darbins was fired from the police force after he was caught on a wiretap discussing a cocaine purchase. Stucky, who was one of Darbins' drug associates, began pressuring the former cop to kill one of the informants in the case. So Stucky and Darbins drove to a record store where the informant was hanging out. Stucky hung back in the pickup truck as Darbins went inside and cornered the informant. He fired at him, but missed. Three days later, Stucky, who was angry about Darbins' bad aim, decided Slick was too sloppy to do business with. Stucky drove Darbins over to a fellow drug dealer's house. Once Darbins and the dealer got comfortable watching TV, Stucky stormed into the room 
and shot Darbins four times with his forty caliber Glock. For good measure, Stucky stood over the body and squeezed off four more rounds. He then leaned over the fresh corpse, kissed it on the cheek, and said, I love you, and I'm going to take care of your family, but you talk too much. To help dispose of the body, Stucky had called the cleanup man, who arrived with rope, gloves, and a roll of plastic. The men wrapped the body in blankets and plastic, tied it with the rope, and dropped it in the trunk of Stucky's 91 Caprice Classic. They drove to an alley where Darbins was unceremoniously dumped. It took six years for authorities to catch up with Stucky. The DEA got a tip that he was shacking up with a friend in Atlanta. A team of agents went to the apartment to take him down. It was Special Agent Harvey who finally managed to arrest him. Amid Stucky's possessions, Harvey found a piece of paper scrawled with some rap lyrics. Lyrics that a prosecutor later would describe as highly autobiographical. I expose those who knows, fill their bodies with holes, wrap them up in a blanket, dump their bodies on the road. The drug dealer who lived in the house where Slick Darbins was killed later turned on Stucky and testified against him in court. Stucky was sentenced to life in federal prison for the murder. With that, his association with Meech ended. But Thelman Stuckey wouldn't be the last of the Puritan Avenue boys linked to the Flinnery brothers. And the association would come in handy when investigators began building their case against Meech's crew. From the time Harvey got the tip that Meech was an associate of Stuckey's, two more years passed before he got his next major break. In the summer of 2001, an informant told the DEA that a man named Meechy was living in a huge white house Evans Mill Road in Lithonia, about 20 miles southeast of Atlanta. A few days later, on August 5, 2001, Harvey went to check out the house. The sleek, minimalist mansion sat at the corner of Evans Mill Road and Belair Lake Drive, the first in a row of massive homes behind an iron gate that read Belair Estates. Over the next few months, Harvey made a habit of driving by the house. Usually, there were high-end sports cars and SUVs parked in the driveway. Toward the end of 2001, it appeared the occupants had up and left. A year and a half later, the DEA connected with one of its informants, the one who had heard it was Meachie who had gunned down Dennis Kingsley Walker. Meach was back in Atlanta, the informant said. In fact, Meach would be throwing himself a birthday party that Sunday at the White House nickname the Flinnery brothers had assigned the Lithonia mansion. Meech was planning the event as an after-party for a more formal affair at Sean P. Diddy Combs's Buckhead restaurant, Justin's. The grandiose invitations to the Justin's party were printed on the cases of promo CDs, the front of which read, Meech's Harem, a birthday celebration of mass proportions. The inside liner promised a party fit for a king, and the back of the case teased, you're invited to indulge in the mysterious a birthday celebration for a unique man. At 1.30 a.m. on June 23, 2003, Agent Harvey drove over to the White House to check out the event. Cars lined both sides of Evans Mill Road. Guests couldn't park too close to the house because the gate at Bel Air Lake Drive was locked. Partygoers came and went through a small door next to the gate. Surveying the scene from the road, Harvey noticed that groups of people were milling around outside, and the grounds 
which included a pool and hot tub, were more lit up than they'd been during the past drive-bys. The following afternoon, a confidential informant who'd been at the party gave Harvey a detailed account of the goings-on inside. Meech had surrounded himself with a group of men who were dressed as he was, in knee-length t-shirts printed with the letters BMF. The letters also were tattooed on Meech's left biceps. He wore his hair in braids, huge diamonds in his ears, a large gold ring on his pinky finger, and a heavy platinum necklace. His ensemble was complete with a hefty blunt, from which he took deep, intoxicating drags. The guest also told the DEA that in the master bedroom was a gun, possibly a forty-five, lying in plain view. Investigators jumped at the possibility that there could be drugs and weapons inside the White House. After running a title search on the property, investigators learned the home belonged, at least on paper, to a woman named Tanessa Welch. And DEA files showed that Tanessa was the longtime girlfriend of Meech's younger brother, Terry Flinnery. Terry's name, incidentally, had shown up in 22 DEA case files dating back to 1990. And, like Meech, he was believed to be a major cocaine trafficker with ties to Atlanta, L.A., Detroit, and St. Louis. Records also showed that Tanessa lived not in Atlanta, but in L.A., most likely with Terry. It was a fair assumption, then, that Meech resided at the White House, and investigators hoped to make that connection in their application for a search warrant. The application was filed on June 25, 2003, two days after the birthday party, and it was filled with the information supplied by the informants. Meech's alleged role in the 1997 highway shooting of Walker, his reputed association with the Detroit gangster Thelman Stuckey, even his blinged-out attire at the birthday party two nights before. To top it all off, it was the informant's description of the blunt in the gun. But the judge didn't bite, nor did he give a reason for refusing the search. The warrant was simply denied, and for a while, the deflated investigators gave up on it. Then, six months later, there arose a more pressing reason to get inside the White House. Sometime after 4 a.m. on November 11, 2003, club owner Brian Alt was running the night's totals. Mondays at Chaos were good money. Customers were known to spend big on hip-hop night, but those nights also carried a cost. Mondays had gotten so wild that, unlike other nights of the week, Chaos patrons had to pass through a metal detector. Still, there had been only a little bit of trouble at the club that night. Three hours earlier, Alt's security team had given him a heads-up that Wolf, a club regular, had gotten aggressive with the woman. Alt was surprised. Earlier that night, Wolf had been bragging to him about his kid and acting the perfect gentleman. Contrary to his violent reputation, Wolf came across to Alt as soft-spoken and articulate. So he took it upon himself to settle the commotion Wolf had caused. He told Wolf it would be better if he left, and Wolf left without a fight. Three hours later, the night appeared to be winding down without a hitch, until one of Alt's employees came running in shortly after last call, saying something bad had gone down outside. Alt raced out of the club, toward the back parking lot. As he rounded the corner near the club's rear stairway, he passed Wolf's ex-girlfriend, who was running away from the parking lot with tears streaming down her face. Alt feared the worst, and when he got to the parking lot, he found it. One of his bartenders, a security guard, and two off-duty medics were trying to keep the two men on the ground alive. For one of the two, it was too late. 
Wolf's friend Riz, who had come to Wolf's aid, was dead. A gun lay at his side. Wolf, however, was still alert. He'd been shot in the chest, but was holding on. While waiting for the ambulance, Alt stuck by his side, imploring Wolf to stay awake, to stay with him, because sleep might mean there was no waking up. As Wolf lay bleeding on the asphalt, a car was speeding up GA-400, carrying two other men wounded in the gun battle. They were on their way to North Fulton Regional Hospital. One of them would later claim that after the first shots rang out, he turned and ran and didn't see a thing, a version of events that would be supported in part by the fact that he'd been shot in the ass. On the other side of Atlanta, a great memorial hospital downtown, Wolf was rushed into the emergency room. Grady's trauma team is one of the country's most adept when it comes to such wrenching injuries as car accidents and shootings, of which Atlanta has no shortage. For Wolf, however, there was little the surgeons could do. Even a wall of bricks can stand up to several high-caliber bullets. Wolf had walked away from other conflicts, but not this one. Within minutes, he was dead too. By the time Atlanta homicide detective Mark Cooper pulled into the club's parking lot, the crime scene had been roped off. His fellow officers were trying to corral as many witnesses as they could, and those patrons unfortunate enough not to have fled were trapped at the scene. No one was allowed to leave. The problem was that none of the people in the crowd claimed to know anything about the gun battle, despite the fact that close to 40 rounds had been fired from several weapons. Detective Cooper's lumbering frame, closely shaven head, and matter-of-fact southern monotone can get him wrongly mistaken for a good old boy. But the detective is a far cry from the stereotypical Deep South lawman. Within minutes, he realized this was no run-of-the-mill club shooting. The strange silence among so many witnesses in such a public place was something he hadn't encountered before. In the next two years, however, after visiting two more crime scenes with ties to this one, Cooper would become more familiar with the phenomenon. While the swarm of Atlanta cops combed through Chaos's parking lot to cobble together what bits of evidence they could, a shell casing, a bullet fragment, a few drops of blood, investigator J.K. Brown fielded the night's first significant clue. It was a phone call. The woman on the line had been transferred to Brown's cell phone after first dialing 911. She said she was calling because she knew who one of the shooters was. She claimed to have seen him reach into the waistband of his pants and pull a pistol. By her estimation, he fired at least seven times. She said that as she ran, she heard more shots. You have a lot of money, the woman told Brown. You have a lot of drugs. You don't know what you're getting yourself into. The shooter, she claimed, went by Michi. A second significant clue came a few hours later police learned that two men had shown up with gunshot wounds at North Fulton Regional Hospital. One of them had been shot in the foot, the other in the buttock. Atlanta officers picked up both men from the emergency room that morning. They were transported to the police headquarters at City Hall East. Seated in separate interrogation rooms, they were asked about their possible involvement in the chaos killings. After interviewing the man with the foot injury, a lumbering, pale-eyed, and heavily tattooed 27-year-old named Amin Bull Height, police decided not to charge him. Instead, they arrested his friend, who said little during the interview and maintained a steady cool for the murders of Anthony Wolf Jones and Lamont Riz Gertie. 
Big Meech was in big trouble. The only thing Meech did say about the chaos incident was that he had nothing to do with the murders, that he turned and ran. They saw nothing. Investigators hoping to learn more about their suspect then asked a simple question. Where do you live? All over, he told him. He had girlfriends he stayed with, he said. Nothing permanent. Yet the DEA had a pretty compelling argument that Meech lived in a big white house off Evans Mill Road. And it seemed that he didn't want them to find whatever was inside. In light of the chaos shootings, investigators now had a more specific goal in their application for search warrant. Find the murder weapon used to kill two men in a Buckhead parking lot. The first time around, when investigators initially filed their application, the judge didn't feel there was enough to go forward. Now things were different. With a few new paragraphs about the double homicide to flesh out the application, the judge signed off. On November 17, 2003, a search team led by Special Agent Harvey filed into the White House, no knock warrant in hand. In the closet of the master bedroom, the team found the sole occupant of the house, a Haitian immigrant and associate of Meech's brother named Innocent Guerville. Investigators snapped the photo of Innocent and eventually let him go. Then, moving from room to room, the investigators took note of the residence's gaudy splendor. The house was outfitted with 170000 in marble alone and nearly 50000 in modern furniture, most of it from ultra-slick Buckhead home store, Huff Furniture and Design. Then there was the rather eccentric assortment of art. The walls of the master bedroom and office were hung with three framed photographs of Al Pacino, lifted from various scenes in Scarface, two photos of infamous Cambino family mob boss John Gotti, including one with an encased cigar and bullets, a portrait of slain rapper Tupac Shakur, and rounding out the collection, a photo of Tupac's arch-nemesis, fellow deceased rapper Christopher Notorious B.I.G. Wallace. The master bedroom turned up other curious items. A police scanner, a stack of 50 CDs titled Meech's Harem, including the invitation to his birthday party five months earlier, a $15,000 medallion that spelled BMF for life in white gold, and a loaded 9mm machine gun in the nightstand. Moving on to the guest bedrooms, the search team found two more handguns, a 40 caliber semi-automatic and a 45, another BMF pendant, and a red spiral-bound notebook. The notebook was filled with scribblings that investigators were all but certain pertained to the drug trade. There were columns titled Airline Ticket, Car Notes, Money Owed, Money Paid, First Run, Cali Run, Two Nights, Cellular Phones. The notebook was also littered with nicknames that were familiar to one member of the search team, Atlanta Police Detective Bryant Bubba Burns. The detective had seen the names recently and paperwork pulled from a seemingly unrelated crime scene, and he was about to make a stunning connection. Like DEA Special Agent Jack Harvey, Burns was a good match for the intense investigation he was about to undertake. He'd been raised on Atlanta's forgotten west side, in the shadow of the public housing behemoth Perry Holmes and the virtually open-air drug market called The Bluff. He'd come of age with one ear trained to the police scanner, obsession handed down from his father, who wasn't a cop, but always wished he'd been. 
It was almost as if Burns' friendly, breathless banter, punctuated by bursts of excitable laughter and grave protestations of the bad guys he chased down, was lifted straight from those crackling airwaves. For the past year, Burns, a newly appointed member of the APD's organized crime unit, had been working undercover to infiltrate a white-collar crime ring. A reported luxury rental car company called Exquisite Empire had been using the identities of straw borrowers to purchase BMWs, Jaguars, and Range Rovers for suspected drug dealers. Two months before the chaos killings, Burns got a major break in the Exquisite investigation. On the night of September 7, 2003, Exquisite's owner, William Doc Marshall, called 911 to report that he just shot and killed a home invader. Police arrived at the Midtown Atlanta townhouse. They found that it was outfitted with a peculiar feature. The home had a room-sized safe. But that wasn't strange enough. In a tight passageway flanking the safe, there sat a single shoe and a lone kilo of cocaine. Detectives figured that somebody had been in a big hurry to empty the contents of the safe. Such a hurry, in fact, that when his shoe slipped off, he kept on running. The detectives also concluded that the home was a drug safe house. At one point, they figured the vault likely had sheltered a small fortune in cocaine. The townhouse was probably targeted by burglars because the attackers, a crew that targeted coke dealers, knew they'd find drugs inside. Detective Burns obtained a search warrant for the property to see if he might find any records pertaining to Exquisite Empire and its owner, Doc Marshall. When he carried out the search... Burns found what he was looking for, and more. The day after the burglary gone bad, Burns removed several boxes of documents that divulged intricate details of Exquisite's inner workings, including the names and phone numbers of its employees, a list of cars that had been diverted from straw borrowers to suspected drug dealers, and ledgers that listed the colorful nicknames of the company's shadier clients. Two months later, after stepping inside the White House, Detective Burns was surprised to find paperwork with strong similarities to the exquisite files. In the White House, Burns discovered documentation for 19 vehicles, including several limos, and applications for nearly as many cell phones. Many of the cars and phones listed in the White House ledger were registered to the names and aliases of Exquisite's employees, and the mysterious nicknames of Exquisite's clients matched some of the nicknames jotted in the red spiral-bound notebook, E. Country, Cuzzo, Wetback. It appeared that Exquisite was funneling cars and phones to the Flinnery Brothers' associates. Now that Burns had established a link between Exquisite's owner, Doc Marshall, and the murder suspect, Demetrius Big Meech Flinnery, both his and Harvey's investigations were going to get a lot more interesting. Something else about the phone numbers listed in the White House paperwork struck investigators. About a half a dozen of the numbers had been in regular contact with numbers under wiretap surveillance in Detroit, where DEA agents were building a case against the Puritan Avenue boys. That investigation was about to wrap up. Eight members of the PA boys, including the crew's leader, Reginald Dancy, and Damon Brantley, were indicted on cocaine conspiracy charges three days after the White House search. Meach was not part of that investigation but his apparent relationship with the PA boys would help bolster the DEA's suspicion that Meech and his brother Terry were big-time cocaine traffickers. Rounding out their search of the White House, investigators found a photo in the office 
showed the Flannery Brothers posing with the PA Boys kingpin, Brantley, in front of Atlanta's hip-hop mega-venue, Club 112. Also in the office, investigators found an electric money counter, several bags of rubber bands, and a stack of business cards with the name Terry Flannery and the company 404 Motorsports. One of the owners of the company, federal agents soon would learn, was Atlanta Mayor Shirley Franklin's son-in-law. And as the investigation progressed, his connection to Terry would become more and more obvious. What investigators didn't find, however, was anything connecting meat to the chaos killings. Of the three guns pulled from the house, the 9mm, the 40 caliber, and the 45, none tested positive for a match to any of the bullets or casings found in the club's parking lot. The big-picture investigation into the scope of Meech's suspected drug organization was taking off, but the murder investigation was sputtering. Two weeks after the White House search, Meech was granted bond, an unusual move in a double homicide, especially one that had grown so sensational. In the wake of the shootings, well-heeled and well-organized Buckhead residents were angrily calling for a crackdown on the violence in their neighborhood. My question is... How many more body bags have to come out of this area? One exasperated resident, Katie Bryant, told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The incident was so emotionally charged that less than two months after it occurred, it was cited as the impetus for Atlanta City's council decision to roll back bar closing hours citywide. Basically, the chaos gun battle wasn't the type of crime that Fulton County DA's office liked to leave unresolved. But the prosecutors were left with little choice. Their case against Meat was simply too thin. As it turns out, the seemingly strong lead, the woman who spoke on the phone to investigators, fizzled out. She was quick to provide the name Michi, but as for her own name, she wouldn't say. She told police she was scared for her life. Even after she agreed to come down to APD headquarters and give a statement, investigators kept her identity a secret. Investigators didn't name her in any of the subsequent court hearings either, of which there were only a few. No grand jury would indict a case without a murder weapon, a witness, or a confession. Indeed, the case never made it to grand jury. The most that could be concluded was that Meech acted in self-defense, if he acted at all. Meech's attorney claimed the charge was bullshit. Two armed men, one of whom had been tossed from the club, fired on Meech and his crew. Meech said he turned and ran, a fact substantiated by his own bullet wound to the derriere. The injury was sufficient foundation for the defense. His attorney would raise, and Meech, far from an aggressor, was in fact a victim. To Big Meech and his crew, to residents of Buckhead, and to other concerned Atlantans, the chaos investigation appeared to be a battle the police had lost. But while the murder case against Meech had fallen apart, the APD and the DEA were able to take what they learned from the White House search and combine it with other information they'd already unearthed. Judging from the breadth of the evidence, investigators were able to see that they were on to something. It was something big. It was something organized. It was something called, formidably enough, the Black Mafia family. 2. The Flinnery Brothers If you haven't heard of us, you soon will. Unidentified BMF member. The 30-mile stretch of highway between Waynesville and Rolla, Missouri, is one of the most taxing of all Interstate 44, which covers 634 miles from northern Texas 
the central St. Louis. Heading east from Waynesville, the road grows steep and winding, traversing a rugged terrain that includes the town of Devil's Elbow, so named for the sharp bend in the Big Piney River. It's a countryside both lush and imposing, and the road that runs through it demands a driver's attention. Imagine, then, the difficulty of navigating not a mere car along these slow curves, but a lumbering 40-foot RV. On the afternoon of April 11, 2004, Jabari Hayes was doing just that. And the RV, a 1999 MCI coach that more closely resembled a tour bus and a vacationer's motorhome, was carrying some precious cargo. Given the conditions of the road, it was predictable that the vehicle would at some point drift across the fog line that hugs the highway shoulder. The infraction was small enough, but it was sufficient cause for a Phelps County deputy to flash his patrol lights and pull the RV over. Sitting in the motorhome's cab awaiting the deputy's approach, Jabari had reason to believe that this was no random traffic stop. Was he being followed by the feds? He couldn't have known for sure, but he was clearly nervous. The deputy told Jabari to step down from the vehicle and take a seat in the back of his patrol car. He then ran a check on Jabari's license, a license that didn't identify him as Jabari Hayes from Atlanta. Instead, it listed a Nashville address, one that had been chosen for Jabari at random, and a fake name, Kenneth Tory Collins. Jabari had been issued the license just two weeks before, shortly after he'd been pulled over while driving another vehicle. He couldn't risk getting nabbed again, not after he played dumb the last time. So, one of his associates had hooked him up with an inside source at the Tennessee Driver's License Bureau. The woman helped Jabari obtain the seemingly legit ID, just as she had done for his associates countless times before. After he received it, he was told to memorize all his details. He needed to be ready, just in case. Now the license was being put to the test. The deputy ran a check on it. It came back clean, just as the woman had promised. Then the deputy started asking questions. Where are you from? he asked. Tennessee, Jabari called out from the back seat. Where are you going? To visit family in St. Louis, for Easter. Did you make any stops along the way? Yeah, one in Georgia and another in Texas, see my cousins. Having noticed that the motorhome had neither Georgia nor Texas nor Tennessee plates, the deputy asked, where did the RV come from? I rented it in Orlando, Jabari said, but I left the paperwork at home. How much did it cost? About $4,000 for the month. How are you employed? I own a valet company. Okay, the deputy said, switching topics. Can you tell me why you have three cell phones? Drug dealers are often armed with multiple phones, a fact of which Jabari was well aware and he was prepared for this question as the others. His response was quick, and under less tense circumstances, might have gotten a chuckle out of his interrogator. I like to separate my business calls from my personal ones, Jabari said. 